Well, this evening, I would like for you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. <clears throat> we'll be reading, reading a rather lengthy portion of 1 Samuel. We'll be reading from verses 1 to 20. First Samuel chapter one, <clears throat> beginning in verse one, hear now the word of the Lord. Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroram the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this, would, now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat of the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, 
Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived, she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. This is the word of God. Now, as we think about this text, one thing may come to your mind, right? I believe we've all had an occasion in which we have longed for something, we have desired something, and yet that desire went unfulfilled. You may think about yourself as a, as a child, perhaps there was a birthday present or, or Christmas gift that you were hoping that you were going to get, you were desiring it, and then that desire was unfulfilled. You got something other than what you expected. Or perhaps at your job, you were expecting a particular promotion because of your hard work and your diligence, and yet you were overlooked and, and passed over. Or maybe as parents, you were expecting to have your quiver full of children, and due to biological circumstances, that didn't turn out to be the case. Incidentally, this was the case of Hannah. She had a great desire for children, but year after year, this desire remained unfulfilled. Now, one thing that we should think about is that not all desires are bad. In fact, they are good desires. But what do we do when good desires are not met? Well, we do what Hannah did. We pray. For God invites us as his children to come and to make our requests onto him. Psalm 55 verse 22 says, Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Now, As we will see, the Lord indeed sustained Hannah. And so too, the Lord will sustain you. He will not allow you to be shaken. But you may say, Pastor Devon, what's the the secret? How come God answered her prayer? When I I pray, I'm not even sure if God even hears it. But may I encourage you today that God not only hears your prayer, but he always, let me emphasize that, he always answers 
If you are God's child, when you pray, he hears you and he answers. Think about that. What I'm saying is every single prayer that you have ever made unto God, he has answered. Now, sometimes the answer is yes. And in those moments, we rejoice. Those are joyful seasons. And then sometimes the answer is no. And in those instances, we can confuse no with unanswered prayer. The fact is, no is not an answered prayer. No is the answer in some instances to our prayers. And then finally, as in the case of Hannah, sometimes the answer is not yet. And so this evening, I want us to consider Hannah and her prayer to the Lord. We'll consider three, three points concerning the prayer of Hannah. First, we will consider the occasion of prayer. Then we will consider the effectiveness of prayer. And then finally, we will consider the answer of prayer. So again, the occasion of prayer, the effectiveness of prayer, and the answer of prayer. Now, in the first place, it's probably helpful to give some, some bit of a context to the book of First and Second Samuel. Um, in, the books, in the books of First and Second Samuel, it really chronicles the transition of Israel from under the administration of the judges to the kings. And so the book begins by speaking of the last two judges, Eli and, and Samuel, and then it transitions into the two main kings of Israel, Saul and David. And so from the birth of Samuel to the death of King David, the book covers a span of about 135 years. Now, what we also need to keep in mind is that the books are primarily concerned with establishing the Davidic covenant. And so we read in 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 to 16, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I remove, <coughs> whom I remove from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, the interesting thing is when we go over to the New Testament, the, um, James 
mentions this exact portion. In Acts chapter 2, verses 29 to 31, he speaks of this as being fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. James says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. And so the life and work of Samuel and David is central to the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. It was through the line of David that the Messiah would come. And it was Samuel who first anointed David as king. And the birth of Samuel came about through the prayers of a weeping wife. And so, is prayer important? Well, I hope this evening that you will see just how important it is by the conclusion. Going back to our text, we read, Now there was a certain man from Ramathim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, and Ephraim. Now, Elkanah was a Levite from the family of the Kohatites, according to 1 Chronicles 6, verses 22 to 23. They lived in Ramah, or as it is referred to in verse 1 as Ramathaim Zophim. Now this man, Elkanah, according to verse 2, had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but it says that Hannah had no children. Now, Just as a side note, whenever we look in scripture and we see that a man has two wives, it usually results in conflict in the home. We think of Abraham, we think of Jacob, and certainly in the case of Elkanah, it was no different. There was conflict in the home. Now, even though this man, Elkanah, had two wives, we are also told that he was a devout man. The text says, Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. Now, in comparison, Israel as a nation, was not devoted to the Lord. In fact, in the book of Judges, there's a phrase that repeats, and it is this, 
Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. We see throughout the book of Judges that there is this pattern where Israel departs from the Lord into idolatry. And then that brings God's judgment and enslavement through other nations. And then the people turn around and cry out for deliverance. And then God sends a deliverer. And then that judge passes away. And then the cycle begins all over again. Now Judges chapter 21 verse 25 ends on this ominous ominous note. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So Israel was at a low point, spiritually speaking, in the days of Elkanah. It says that the word of the Lord was rare, according to 1 Samuel 3.1. The people practiced idolatry, and even the priesthood was corrupt. In fact, of the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, it says in 1 Samuel 2.12 that they were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. But Elkanah, by contrast, was a devout man. Going back to 1 Samuel chapter 1, it says, When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord, again, had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. In the first place, notice that the text says, and in fact it says it twice, that the Lord closed Hannah's womb. It's as if the text doesn't want you to rush over that point. That what Hannah was experiencing came from the hand of the Lord. We could say it a different way. We could say it like this. God is sovereign. And the implication of his sovereignty is that both good and bad alike come from his hand. And so in Job chapter 2 verse 10, Job poses this question to his wife. He says, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? The answer is, of course not. We must accept both. For both prosperity and adversity comes from the hand of the same God. So then, to despise your trial 
is ultimately to despise God, for nothing happens by chance, whether it is some physical affliction or the affliction of a wayward child. God is sovereign over all these things. Secondly, notice the prolonged sinful response of Peninnah to Hannah's unfruitfulness. The text says it happened year after year as often as she went up to the house of the Lord. How many years do you suppose this happened? One year? Two years? Five years? Ten years? Fifteen years? Hannah experienced the burden of being barren and the burden of provocation from her rival for years. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to the adversity of barrenness as a mother or to the burden and provocation of a child who is barren of godliness? Years go by, and year after year, there is no change. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to the response of Hannah to the provocation? The text says that she wept and would not eat. Now, there are certain situations when immense grief can have a physical effect on the body. In certain instances, it might cause us to not want to eat anything. Or it might cause us to go in the opposite direction and overeat. Again, we see that things that are happening on the inside can affect what happens on the outside. We know that various sins can cause this type of grief. Certain life events like the loss of a child can cause this type of grief in marriage. The barrenness of the womb can be an occasion for this type of grief. But also, ungodly children, particularly adult children, can cause their parents this type of of grief also. Someone once wrote, the good father is not only troubled with a wicked child, but also for the bitterness and sorrow of his wife. And the good mother is not only troubled with the wicked child, but also for the grief of her husband. The mother's heart bleeds to see the tears and to hear the groans of the afflicted father and cries out, Oh, what a child have I brought forth that so much deprives me of the comfort of a loving husband and is like the break and, and is like to break his heart and to make me a desolate and disconsol- disconsolate wid- widow. The father mourns to see the tears and the sad countenance and to hear the groans of the distressed mother, and is ready to cry out, Woe is me! 
that the child of my bowels is destroying the wife of my bosom. What are we to do again when faced with such adversities? Whether it is barrenness like in the case of Hannah or consistent provocation from a rival or the burden of a wayward child. Brethren, we are to do like Hannah. We are to pray. The text says, Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. See, we are to pray at all times and not faint, particularly in the midst of trials. When God appears not to hear us, we are to pray fervently and to pour out our hearts before him. For he does hear us and he does care for us. Now this leads us to our second point, which is the effectiveness of prayer. Again, having gone through the book of Philippians, we recall Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Again, that word, anxious, it's not the, the type of anxiousness like uh, a child waiting for a Christmas pre- present. Rather, it carries with it the idea of anxiety. The text says again, be anxious for nothing. Don't get caught up. Don't, don't worry. Don't fall into this hole and this pit of despair, but rather we are instead to make our our requests made known to God. In other words, pray. Like Hannah, make your requests to God for your children. The text says, she greatly distressed prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. Now, what I would like to tell you is that you can save your children through your faithful proclamation of the gospel to them. That all you need to do is to have consistent family devotions. That all you need to do is live the gospel before them. If you are a minister of any sort, fulfill your duty to the church. 
Spend enough time with them. Be diligent in the discipline of your children when they're young. And God will indeed save your children. But this is not the case. Now, these things are good and should be pursued. And we should seek to do these things diligently. However, the problem is not with the practices. The problem is with sin. Your sin and your child's sin ruins the equation. And so we are to pray. As one writer notes, Be mighty in prayer for your children, for all the good ye desire for them must come from God, and therefore must be begged by prayer. It is vain for them to be taught of us, except they be taught of God. So do not neglect to go to the throne of grace regularly on behalf of your children. Do not take it for granted that your children will be saved because they go to a sound Bible-believing church or that they have godly parents or that their friends are Christians. Do not place your confidence in the fact that you homeschool so your children are not exposed to the ungodly school system. I'm often soberly reminded of a king by the name of Joash in 2 Chronicles 24, 1-2. We read, Joash was seven years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Zibiel from Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord, All the days of Jehoiada, the priest. The text again says that Joash did right in the sight of the Lord. As long as Jehoiada was alive. But later we see what happened when the godly influence was removed from his life. Second Chronicles 24, verses 15 to 18. Now when Jehoiada reached a ripe old age, he died. He was 130 years old at his death. They buried him in the city of David among the kings, because he had done well in Israel and to God and his house. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their guilt. What will your children do after you are gone? They may appear to be walking with the Lord now, but will they do so in their adult years? They will if God grants faith and repentance. This is why you must cry out on behalf of your children like Hannah did and remember the exhortation 
of James chapter 5, verse 16. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The effective prayer of a righteous man and a righteous woman accomplishes much. This mighty weapon of prayer changes things. Consider the example of 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. In 2 Kings 21 to 6, we have the record of King Hezekiah, very familiar passage of scripture. Um, Hezekiah is about to die from an illness, and he prays to the Lord. The text says, In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, how I walk before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Now, is the point of this prayer and this passage that we have recorded in Scripture that Hezekiah prayed and changed God's mind? Of course not. God does not change his mind. Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? You see, rather than the point of the text being to highlight the fact that Hezekiah changed his mind. More so, the point of the text is to demonstrate the fact that the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. It was through the means of Hezekiah's prayers that God accomplished his sovereign will. I submit to you that it was the sovereign will of God to heal Hezekiah and add 15 years of life even before he prayed that prayer. Say, how do I know that? Well, it was during those 15 years that he had Manasseh who eventually succeeded him as king according to 2 Kings 21 verse 1. Now, if we jump over to the New Testament in Matthew, t- Matthew chapter 1, verse 10, we see once again the mention of Manasseh 
as part of the long line through which ultimately would come the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, prayer is a means by which God accomplishes his sovereign purposes. In prayer, we show our dependence upon God, and God does not disappoint. How often, then, have we underutilized this mighty weapon? Prayer is indeed effective. It is effective not because of the act of itself, but because of the one in whom we pray to. And so, to put it another way, we do not have faith in prayer, but faith in the God to whom we pray. Again, I say to you that God hears and he answers. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ. His life was characterized by prayer. And and if the God-man was constantly in prayer, what makes us think that it should be any less for us? In fact, Jesus exhorts all believers to do the same. In Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 7, Jesus tells us a parable. He says, Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow, this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? Again, What's the point of this passage? Is it that if we bug God enough, he'll give us what we want? Again, the answer is no. The text states the intention of the parable in the first verse. It says that he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Do you suppose that this was the first time that Hannah had prayed to God about her barrenness? Is it possible that she prayed about this issue for years? You may, like Hannah and Hezekiah, poured out your heart to God with tears and weeping on behalf of your children, and that even for years. May I encourage you to pray and not lose heart. Go to the Lord with all of your burdens and wait on his answer. For as I said in the beginning, he always answers his children. Now this then, 
leads us to our final consideration, which is the answer of prayer. Going back to our main text, we read in verse 20, it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. You see, God heard Hannah's prayer and he answered. God's answer in this instance was yes. And if you are a believer here today, then you too, you too know the joy of experiencing prayers that are answered by yes. I pray today that God would answer the prayer for the salvation of all of our children with yes. That another generation who knows and fears the Lord may be raised up. That he would raise up Hannah's and Samuel's who would walk in the ways of the Lord and fall on their face and cry out to him for the salvation of the lost. Again, we have a great high priest who ever lives to intercede on our behalf. And since we are united to him, we have an audience with the Father. And we know that the Father hears our prayers. And again, he always answers. As I said before, many times the answer is yes. But sometimes the answer is no. Honestly, I wish I could just end things here. But I must also address the unsavory subject of when God says no to the salvation of our children. Samuel, as we read in later chapters, was a special child who grew up to be an extraordinary adult. Samuel brought nationwide repentance to Israel and even interceded for the people and delivered them from destruction by the hands of the Philistines. He was a judge. He was a priest. He was a prophet. It says that he walked uprightly before God. Surely this man would be blessed with godly offspring, right? Well, we read this about the sons of Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, 1 to 3. It says, And it came about when Samuel was old that he anointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Do you suppose that Samuel had remembered the first prophecy given to him by God concerning the death of Eli and his two sons? 
Do you suppose that Samuel strived to raise his children differently from his predecessor? The Bible does not give us any indication that Samuel was a negligent parent who failed to discipline his sons like Eli. Nevertheless, this godly man had ungodly children who grew up to be ungodly adults. Hear me today. Godly parents can have ungodly offspring. We have many examples of this from the scripture. Besides Samuel, there is David, the man after God's own heart, whom Samuel again anointed as king over Israel. He too was an example of a godly parent who bore ungodly seed. Recall again the tears that were shed when his ungodly son Absalom died. The text says, The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It is a difficult trial to parent a child who is ungodly to the end. For the godly child, or rather the ungodly child, is a grief and a burden to their godly parents. David wept bitterly for his son, and we will do the same if our children follow in the footsteps of Absalom. Weeping in this instance is natural, but we must not become overtaken with despair, for this too is sin. Someone has said, Abhor it as a great sin to faint under this affliction. That is, either to be disabled for, the, for thy duty or to sink in thy comforts. It is a sign that thou didst place too much of thy happiness in thy children if their wickedness make thee faint under this calamity. I shall only plead with thee as Joab did with David when he heard that bitter lamentation for his son Absalom. Thou hast declared this day that thou regardest neither princes nor servants. So I say to thee, thou hereby declarest that thou regardest not God and Christ, if thy soul faint under the burden of a disobedient child. Again, to be clear, I'm not saying that as parents we do not weep for our children. It is normal as godly parents to weep for children who are ungodly to the end. But what I am saying is that if we find ourselves beaten down by giant despair, it is because we have wandered into Doubting Castle. We have doubted God's word and God himself. I ask you, when did 
Hannah's countenance change? Was it when she received the promise or when she received the word of the Lord? Go back to verse 17. The text says, Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Again, do not doubt God's word, but let it comfort your soul in great trials. Remember what I'm preaching to you here today, because there will be an occasion in the, in the future where you will need to recall it. Hold fast to this truth. Hold fast to the promises of God's word. Remember his character. God, for instance, says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. As Matthew Henry rightly notes on this passage, either our trials will be proportioned to our strength or strength will be supplied in proportion to our temptations. Again, the word of God says in Psalm 119.68, you, speaking of God, are good and you do good. It's easy to say that in prosperity, but do you still say that in, a, in adversity? When times get hard, do you remember his character? Do you believe the word of God in that instance? Do you believe Romans 8.28? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Again, do you believe this? What will you believe to be true about God if God does not grant salvation to your children? Will you say as Job did in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. In closing, on one hand, Parents bear the responsibility of pointing their children to Christ. Make no mistake about it. God held Eli responsible for his failure in parenting Hophni and Phineas. But on the other hand, we can do everything right and they still end up lost. Now, should that hour come, God will give us the grace. But until that time, let us pray, and let us pray fervently. Isaiah 59.1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull 
that he cannot hear. You say that your adult child has no desire for God. I say to you, Isaiah 59, 1. Again, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. You say that your child is rebellious and discipline doesn't seem to be working and instruction just goes by the wayside. It has no effect. Again, Isaiah 59.1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. The Lord's ear is not dull to your prayers, and his hand can and does save. Go to him for your children, and on behalf of all of our children, that, that they may turn to Christ in faith and repentance. Amen? Well, in light of the word of the Lord here this evening, first and foremost, it is appropriate for us to pray to cry out to God, to go to God fervently on behalf of our children. That God may save them. Also, as we have been going through the teaching series by Pastor Greg during the, the morning service, I think it is also appropriate to pray again in light of everything that we've heard about Eli's responsibilities to his children, that we also pray that as men, that we would walk uprightly before the Lord and lead our families. We also want to pray for various opportunities for the gospel. We want to lift up uh, Margaret Hebe and uh, Patrick, who, by the way, there, there seems to be uh, some bit of a of some some bit of a recovery there. Um, I believe they said that uh, perhaps sometime this week. What it sounds like is that they they don't really know. Um, but again. That is another opportunity. Um, Patrick has friends that are coming that are unsaved. There's another opportunity for the gospel to go forward, and we want to lift that up. We want to pray that as, they, as, as those who go and visit, that we uh, share the word through, through psalms, through, uh, through the word of God, and that it not only reaches and, uh, and affects Patrick's heart, but those who are there as well. We also want to pray for Rosemary and um, Pamela's son, grandson, Aiden. We want to continue to um, pray again for gospel opportunities. That in the midst of all these adversities, that the gospel may go forth and that Christ might be glorified.
Again, as, I, as is our, our custom, I will ask once again the, the men to lift up their voice to bring these things before the Lord. As again, as we cry out to our Lord, for indeed he does hear and answer our prayers. Let's go to the Lord and word of prayer.